Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Positive Pessimist Podcast. It's Wrestling Wednesday. My guest today is Tim Vanney, one of the greatest U.S. lightweights in history of wrestling, United States wrestling. He was a seven-time world team member, a two-time Olympian. He was also an assistant coach on the 88 National Championship team for Arizona State University. I've been looking forward to talking to him for a while, so without any further ado, let's bring him in. Hi, Mr. Vanny. Well, good afternoon, Tim. How are you? I'm good, buddy. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's finally. Yeah, we finally got the connection. Yeah, it's not a perfect science. Sometimes it uh, acts weird on you. But anyway, we're here now, so that's all that matters. Um, so you're in California too, right? I am. What part of California? I'm in Central California. I'm up between Bakersfield and Fresno. Portland. Okay. Good wrestling country up there. Yeah, we we like to claim the uh, we're the we're the meat in the sandwich because we got Bakersfield who's tough to the south, and then we have Clovis who's extremely tough to the north. So our Central Valley is just a hotbed. Yeah. Do you make it out to the state championships? Oh yeah. Do you yeah. try to you try to go every year? Well, um, I do because I'm still coaching. Okay, I didn't realize that for some reason. I'm still coaching at Portable High. We had uh, one boy and three girls go to the state this year, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, California. You know, I tell people all the time. It's it's uh, you know a lot of states. It's not very difficult to make to make it to state, but in California, just making it to state is a big deal. It, it's uh, quite the accomplishment for a lot of kids, um, especially from our section, which is predominantly one of the toughest in the sections because we, we usually have five teams in the top 10 at state. And then, you know, you throw in Poway and Gilroy and, and some of the other strengths around the state. Uh, uh, but just getting there uh, is quite the accomplishment. Yeah, I've become friends with uh, John Myers, the Poway head coach. Oh, yeah. and. Uh, Man, they've had quite a run out there, haven't they? Well, you know, uh, with Brandstetter retiring and John was his assistant for probably as long as I've been coaching too. So, I mean, he's been there forever. So he knows the program inside and out. And now you have Stephen Neal as well and his son's wrestling there. So uh, it's got quite the history. It's a great San Diego section. Have you always been a California guy? Is that where you started wrestling? I started wrestling here. I grew up in Porterville. It's kind of the hometown. Uh, I went to Menachee High School, which is uh, across town. And then when I came back after 92 and took a teaching job at Porterville High School, I became the trader, according to my nieces. <laughs> I'm now at the rival high school. And uh, my high school coach was actually still coaching then. And okay. He really had the horses in the stable and a well-established program. He said, you'll never beat me. Well, I never did. But uh, after he retired, we, we finally, you know, we beat him uh, this year, in fact. Uh, awesome. So we beat him a number of years through uh, 2005, I think, was the first time we beat them. How old were you when you started wrestling, and how did you get into it? Well, like most people, you know, you have siblings that uh, are older that pick on you all the time. So Man. I have uh, my oldest brother, Vince, uh, is four years older, and I started in seventh grade after a number of beatings, you know, through fifth and sixth grade. And I finally got drugged into the wrestling room and started with uh, my high school coach, uh, Drew Williams, 
that uh, had a little club going and you know the feeder program and that's back when it started in uh, must have been 73 or so 1973 school started okay were you good from the start uh well i had an older brother another brother danny who was 18 months older and i could never beat danny so i was i guess i was second best actually <laughs> the, the true story is my first tournament was in, in a small town called Lindsay, which is a third of the size of porterville and uh i was excited because i got a medal that was my first tournament i got a medal but there was only three guys in the weight class <laughs> My brother Danny took second. Guy from Lindsay took first. Okay, <laughs> that was my introduction. But you know, I guess I was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me about your high school career. Oh, high school! Now you're talking ancient history. <laughs> uh, my high school career, I was 98 and 12, and uh, I won the the section here twice. I went to state as a sophomore, and then uh, and then I was. Uh, section champ twice in 78 and 79 and 78 we won the section so we beat Clovis we beat Bakersfield our high school team won all those and uh, uh, that was quite the accomplishment just for our section the section champions and my junior year I took sixth in the state I was 36 and 0 going into the semifinals of state lost three in a row and uh, Bruce Terry, who was a two-time state champ, beat me the next year in the finals. Um, real controversial. I think that was a lot of uh, uh, things that kind of propelled me to be persevere and overcome because you know I was kind of robbed out of that match my senior year, which I was 34 and one that season. But uh, I lost to uh, some other names my junior year. Uh, Scott Kitchen, who was out of Bella Vista. Uh, teammates with uh, John Loomis back in the day, and then uh, Larry Nicholson I lost to um, in the state that year. And, uh, so your junior year when you lost uh, the three in a row, after you lost that first one in the semis, was it kind of mental? Because I, I, I remember being in those situations where you're like undefeated going into the quarters or semis at state, and uh, myself and some other friends did the same thing went all the way down to, to sixth. Um, and I know California is super tough too, but was it a mental thing for you at that point or? Well, you know, I don't know that we had this mindset type things that they have nowadays. <laughs> I don't know that we really thought about that that much, you know, I mean, of course you're discouraged and you're distraught because in the semis I lost to Bruce Terry, one, one overtime match. And it came down to referee's decision yeah so yeah i mean you're you know i don't know that it was mental because the mental part was trying to still learn how to wrestle because my next match i wrestled uh, uh larry nicholson and i hadn't been taken down all year and he got on top and turned me for three he beat me three zero and then my last match for fifth and six i wrestled scott kitchen out of bella vista and i was beating him six to two not smart. I try a, a submarine, which is, you know, if 
fighting the wizard off and you got a seat belt on, you dive through the legs and he put his legs in and got five, beat me seven, six. So wow. I don't know if that was metal, mental because I, I was in every match. It's just not wrestling smart. You know, yeah. you got a, a four, four point lead and then you're trying to do some uh, high percentage move that you know, I think over time, that kind of experience kind of teaches you. Yeah, I read that you didn't give up a takedown your junior or senior year. Is that true? That's true. Okay. Yeah, I, I was good on my feet. You know, I mean, I wrestled Adam Cullen uh, in the semis. My senior year was a phenomenal year because uh, all four semifinalists were undefeated. Wow. It, it, it would never happen again nowadays. Uh, but I wrestled Adam Cullen. We ended up at Arizona State, and uh, uh, I beat him 6-5, but he turned me. You know, he reversed me and turned me, and I ended up beating him 6-5. And Bruce Terry beat John Loomis on the other side, and then I lost to Bruce Terry in the finals. Okay. Yeah, that, that's high school history. Yeah. Well, that's tell me tell me about college. Like, were you a smaller guy going into college? Did you – what, what well, did you weigh? I was a 98-pounder in high school. Okay. So, you know, my senior year I beefed up to about 112, and I cut back down to 98. So I, I kind of learned how to cut weight in high school, which really taught me a lot. Uh, uh, mostly discipline and willpower and, and all those things you kind of go through trying to learn how to cut weight and kind of learn about your body. Um, so I, I became – very very good at learning how to cut weight well my senior my college career i, I you know i would weigh in with all my clothes on you know because at the beginning of the season back in college they start out at 123 and then each month they go down like a couple pounds till they get to 118 in march and um i got beatings you know i think the first month i was at cal state bakersfield uh i didn't get a takedown coming out of high school not being taken down for two years that was kind of devastating yeah and i went every day to practice i mean i never missed a practice and i got beat up by everybody john Azevedo, joe gonzalez and then adam questus came in as well and you know we had some wars and yeah so that was college and i wasn't really ambitious on competing nc2a level because we had good guys there you know, I'm not going to beat those guys. It just wasn't going to happen. So uh, I had already set my goal on, you know, being an Olympic champion in my junior year. And that's kind of what propelled me to you know, be good on my feet because I had done a lot of freestyle in my youth. And, and those nine-minute matches back in the 70s, you know, <laughs> that was a, a, a blessing to kind of train through those types of that error where you did go a nine minute match. You, you knew how to train and sustain yourself for nine minutes. And that, that was intense. But college wise, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of ambitions on wrestling college. My, my, uh, I think I was 12 and eight was my best year. My whole college career, I think I only wrestled 20 matches. So I think yeah. I was 12 and eight in college. So I didn't have much of a college career, but I had these great workout partners in the Cal State Bakersfield room at that time. Were phenomenal. Uh, you know, Joe C was coaching. We had John. We had Joe. We had Adam. We had Danny. We had Jesse Reyes. And we had a number of guys that were, you know, Perry Shea and Ricky Stewart and Zaleski, one of those two. But 
I mean, it was a phenomenal room, and uh, it was, and that's what it was. It was a room. It was about as big as your office right there. <laughs> that's what it was. It was a small yeah. room, and people were bouncing off the walls. So uh, you got tough, and yeah, sweat, sweat dripping off the ceiling. Oh yeah. Well, you know, there was, there was sweat everywhere and yeah. not to mention people, you know, we have these van wars or, you know, tape up the coach day type things. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a war. So when you were starting out in the freestyle scene, was uh, Bobby Weaver the guy? Uh, when I first started out, uh, Bobby was there and then Bill Rosado, Bill Rosado was coming off the 76 Olympics and then we were kind of um, won the trials in 1980 and made the team in 80. Uh, I went to the trials in 80. That was my first real exposure to national level competition. And uh, Bobby, we, um, Bill Rosado beat me 21 to three, my first match. <laughs> so I got wow. it. And then uh, the next year, he only beat me uh, 7-0 in the national finals or 7-2 or something like that. But uh, uh, I improved quickly. Do you, have any Bob, do you have any Bobby Weaver stories? He seems like a different breed of cat. <laughs> Let's see. What do we want to put out there publicly? Um, no, I, uh, you know, Gable was in Bobby's corner. You know, he was he was a he was a Bobby Weaver fan, and, and uh, you know we trained together for a number of years you know, through '84, and uh, he's never helped me. He never thanked me for helping him get you know Olympic gold medal because I was the guy that was training with him every day of the whole camp at Big Bear, and there was times we you know he started you know left hooks and right hooks and he was fired up. He, the guy had a lot of energy. I mean, he was, he was, he had a lot of energy. He was just a motor and he wouldn't stop at anything. And Gable's like, let it go, let it go. I was like, hell, I was ready to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and he knows that we're friends now, you know, me and him and uh, Bill Rosado, you know, we kind of communicate through social media, sometimes on the phone, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of water under the bridge back in the day. Yeah, I bet. I've tried to get him on here a couple of times and, and he'll he'll talk to me, but he won't talk about wrestling at all. It's funny. Like I'll be like, Hey, would you like to be on my podcast? And he just completely ignores the question. <laughs> so that's why I say he's a different breed of cat. I've never really talked to him, but I can just tell through just messages. I'm like, this dude's different. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, you know, he 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 won his gold medal and, and I don't know that uh, you know, he's accomplished a lot in his life. I mean, twice in NC2As as a little guy, you know, I mean, he's like a leech, like most of us little guys are. We're trying to leech on the bigger guys all the time. That's who we got to work out with. So, uh, but yeah, he's he's in a little world in Pennsylvania, and he's he's never kind of really strayed from that. And, uh, and you guys are both teachers, right? What's that? You guys are both teachers, right? Like, is he he's a teacher too? Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not sure if he's retired like me. I just retired last year. Okay. So I'm still coaching, but I'm not in the classroom. Okay. Um, so was it difficult to make 105 and a half? Um, not 
really in the 80s. Uh, wasn't wasn't in the early 80s. It wasn't bad. But then I went to uh, I went and coached after I coached at Cal State Bakersfield. I went to Switzerland to coach over there uh, in 87. And when I came back, I about shit myself because I weighed 132 pounds. Oh, wow. Scared, scared the daylights out of me. And I thought, here I went over there to kind of get out of all the pre-hype for the Olympics. And, and you know, am I ever going to make 105 again? You know, scared me. Scared me to death. So it took a while. But, yeah, it was always uh, a science. I mean, there's some times when I really struggled with it. You know, when I tell Bill Wick and Gable to, you know, Hey, keep that door of the sauna closed for another five minutes. <laughs> you know, don't let me out. And I mean, there's times that uh, was brutal with knee injuries and whatnot in, in uh, probably uh, 86 nationals. Not good. Uh, the trials in 89 or 90 had a knee injury. Uh, made it tough because when, when you can't do all the things that you would like, I mean, other than dieting, you can't do your sprinting or your distance running and you got to tape your feet to the pedals, you know, and just do it all on the bike. Um, it limits you. It makes it a little tougher. But, you know, if you plan right, if you do it right, it's just going to take a little longer. You know, you're not going to be able to do it in the last week. Like most kids are trying to do now, especially high school. Yeah. So you dealt with a lot of knee injuries. Do your knees still bother you? Oh yeah, I got a titanium left knee. Had that when I was forty-six. So, two thousand six is when I had the replacement knee replacement, and then uh, two years. Well, twenty twenty-one October, I had a uh, my bursa sac of my right knee uh, extracted. Why I don't know, but it was all purple and swelled up and. Never caused me any pain. And I, you know, the doctor said, oh, you must have hit it. You must have hit it. I'm like, not aware of it. My whole right side of my body has been great other than my shoulder and my knee now. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've had my share of injuries and in beating, especially on my left side to take the most of these left hand. What kind of what kind of coach was uh was Gable? I mean, what do you have any good stories about Dan Gable? I love Dan Gable stories. <laughs> the Dan Gable story. Uh, well, you know, between Brad Penrith and those guys, you know, it's like he's, he goes crazy over donuts. You open his desk drawer, you're going to find a donut. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me personally, um, you know, I had my high school coach in sports lit class my junior year. And I read the Dan Gable book, you know, about how his sister was murdered and all the whole Dan Gable story. And that's kind of what motivated me to say, well, you know, I've done well in wrestling. I, I think I can make the Olympics. And and I thought, man, you know, what a fantastic guy. You know, I mean, he's just done it all, right? And I was thinking to myself, man, he'll probably be dead by the time, by the time I get up into that arena, you know, over international wrestling. And Lo and behold, six years later, he's coaching me at the World Cup. You know, and I was like, full circle type mo- moment that you don't realize that the, the potential that people are right there. I mean, they're there. 
and he's still there. Uh, other than that, you know, the guy's a napper, you know, driving on the bus anywhere at Pan Am's or training camp, and he just he'll close his eyes and he'll he'll nap and. <laughs> so it, it makes you wonder if you know all his energy but he's a great motivator and uh, that's what i've always admired about him he, you know, he could really motivate people how, how did he motivate you because i've talked to people like tom ryan who say that like his greatest gift as a coach was uh, like specializing in, in in talking to his individual athletes like he he knew what made them tick and that's part of why he, i don't want to say burned out early but he got out of the sport pretty early as far as coaching because it, he was he put so much into it um how did he motivate you well i think it's just not just his presence but uh, uh kind of looking outside the normal box of, of what I guess has become, you know, mindset training, that type of thing, uh, where, you know, not that he's, he's saying you're the best and you're going to beat this guy, but he, he kind of takes the limitations off of you, you know, and, and helps you realize that you don't have limits. You can you know, accomplish things. And it's, it's a little bit different because I remember in the world cup and a couple world championships and that, uh, uh, you don't have limits. You, know, you just go out and you know, be your best, and you'll be fine. If you use your tools that you have and your skills, then you'll, you'll be good. So uh, in that sense, it kind of calms you down so you don't have the nervous anxiety that you would normally have before you know, a major match, which you know, it's not like the first round. You know, it's the championship. You know, it's the final. Yeah. This is, you know, you're going against the Russians, and you know, so you know. And I think the other way it kind of motivated me was because it was always in Bobby Weaver's corner. You know, he was he was a Bobby fan, and that motivated me. And it even motivated me even more when, because uh, him and Bill Wick are real close together. You know, and they would all Bill would do all the physical training and able to do most technique and, and organizing things. But Bill Wick was always telling me after uh, 88 that Bobby Weaver's coming back. Bobby Weaver's coming back. So I was like, yeah, right. Let him come back. <laughs> Maybe that was 87. I think at 87 Worlds, he was telling me that Weaver's coming back. Come on back. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I think I was ready by then. Although I didn't fare as well as he did internationally. So, um, you know, I had my ups and downs. Yeah. Well, we all do. Um, so since I'm, since we're talking about Gable and you were on a team with, uh, um, uh, two teams with John Smith and Bruce Baumgartner, and you've been able to, you know, watch as a coach and everything like Jordan Burroughs career and Kyle Snyder and Dake and all these guys who, in your opinion, is the greatest ever. <laughs> in the U.S. You know, it's hard to quantify because, you know, sport of wrestling, you're going to have to put somebody in each weight class, right? Yeah. So, I mean, without a doubt, you know, I could say in the lighter weights or the middle weights, John Smith, because he did it consecutively in a row. 
and it was rare that he lost one match a year, maybe two, you know, through that whole time. That's about mm-hmm. it. And on the heavier side, um, you know, I, I kind of got to put Kenny Mundy in that category too, because he's a three-time Olympian and uh, two-time finalist. And had he not dislocated his elbow in the training camp a couple of days before Barcelona, he probably would have won that one too. But you know, he's a three-timer. He's got. He's, he's the first competitor. I mean, anybody that comes out and beats Dave Schultz and throws him to his back, you know, he, he was tough and he figured it out. I think he he uh, mentally, uh, Kenny's extremely strong because he didn't let any of that stuff get in his way as far as what Dave had accomplished. And he was just there to beat him and he was there to win a gold medal. Uh, and then, you know, on a heavier end, you got to look at Bruce Baumgartner. I mean, the guy went to four Olympics. Yeah. Champ, that was in all four. And back then, you, you know, after 88, when people started getting stipends, you know, you, you got extra money for consecutive medals in the world. You know. So consecutively, you know, is is earned his way, you know, to that position, you know, probably the greatest heavyweight. Now you got Gable Stevenson. So, you know, he, he's a different kind of guy. Um, I, I don't know that people have become more talented. Uh, I think they're, they do more. Uh, there's, there's an edge in training that can give you an extra edge there's edge in dieting there's there's all kinds of razor sharp things that make the athlete fine-tuned and a lot better uh you know for me cutting weight wasn't always a problem did i do it the right way all the time who knows could i have done it better you know there's some things that i could have done better but for the most part i i i thought i did pretty well uh yeah because I know how to do it, and I, you know, I pass that on to all my athletes, my kids, and, and you know, uh, but you know, nutrition now, and you know, mindset training, and and all this different kinds of focus. I think we had that; it was just not called anything, wasn't named. And now they they had, uh, you know, dietary things, and and they're learning about the protein and. and the things that are actually giving you energy during that time and the glucose level. And I mean, it's, it's a science now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Kenny Monday and I had Mark Schultz on here and he said that Kenny Monday was just a freaking nightmare to wrestle. I was talking to him, I was asking him like who some of the toughest people he'd ever wrestled. And he was like, Kenny Monday was a freaking nightmare. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, Mark, he was a powerhouse guy, you know, he'd like to slow things down. Kenny moved. And I think that, you know, you talk about different wrestling styles. uh, It's different. You know, for me, I kind of took style. I stole some from Dave, you know, slow down the the Asian group, you know, because they're really fast and then speed up against the European group, you know? So I, I kind of had a, a style between Joe Gonzalez and Dave Schultz. And that's, that was kind of my style. I kind of blended those. I stole things from both of those guys. 
and blended in and that was that was me so yeah i think everybody kind of adapts into that and mark is a fantastic competitor too uh, i've been on teams with him as well and but i think any you know he, he moved a lot he, he yeah explosive. yeah i tell anybody who will listen i'm like mark schultz had about the best 10-year career that anyone could possibly have. California State champ, three-time NCAA champ. He made, I think, four or five world teams. He won the Worlds three times and made two Olympic teams. And he did all that in 10 years. And it's just hard to wrap your brain around how someone could do that. But, And I also, you mentioned Bruce Baumgartner. Um, it kind of bothers me a little bit when people talk about the greatest U.S. guys ever. And I, I often hear him left off the list. And I'm like, that guy made, he medaled. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And medaled at, at what, 13 in a row? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It's absurd. It is. Yeah. I think the only one he didn't, no, he medaled in that one too, because he was one of the highest placers. In 94, we were in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and we got pummeled, you know. And even Dave Schultz said, "Ah, well, we brought the JV team because I think it was, I think Melvin Douglas won won a world championship, and I think uh, Bruce was third because you know he had the Turkish eye poker guy, and and I think Dave was fifth, and I was ninth. I mean, that was it on '94. That's that's all that placed, and we just got destroyed. It was one of our worst probably ever, you know. So when you talk about really good wrestlers you know it, it's it you know everybody has their ups and downs i mean nowadays i mean you're looking at these guys that are phenomenal i mean you're looking at gable stevenson you know i think if he really he's explosive and he, he can open things up really develop things and you look at dake and i think dake is the kind of scientist guy because he's looking at all these little fine-tuning type things, whether it's diet or I mean, even his vision, he was wearing blue glasses so the computer screen wouldn't affect his, you know, vision and his thought process, whatever. And Burroughs, um, yeah, he, he's, that's rare. I mean, it's rare. I mean, you're looking at the best of the best. And, uh, but there seems to be more of those now, even on the women's side. They're getting, I mean, super. Yeah, yeah. With the U.S. is certainly a very deep these days, and what you did is pretty damn remarkable too. I mean, so you made, including the Olympics, nine world teams in a row. Is that correct? Not in a row. Okay. I I lost to Corey Bays in 1990, so I had knee surgery. Three weeks later, I was at the trials trying to, you know, make the world team to Tokyo. Uh, Corey beat me, and I think he ended up seventh or eighth at the world um so i didn't make it in a row i had to do a comeback and then i got destroyed in 91 worlds uh the year zeke beat uh jordanoff and i kind of got destroyed my first two matches i mean i didn't get destroyed i was in them though i broke my nose and had some other things go on and just to get ready for 92 you know coming off of surgeries and whatnot uh that was a real challenge to make the 92 team. Yeah. So who were your toughest guys then when, when you were making the world teams with the, the nine that you did make? Who was your best competition? Well, uh, Richie Salomon, who goes way back, 
you know, because he was he was there in the late 70s and him and Bobby Weaver used to be at it. And they were both New York Athletic Club guys. And uh, um, I first wrestled Richie in 1981 Nationals to make the finals against Bill Rosado. So uh, and then we we had a rivalry that, you know, I'd beat him once or twice and then he'd beat me three times in a row, you know, because he beat me out of all the national titles uh, up until 86 or 87. I don't know. I think it was 86. Okay. Yeah, until 86. Because uh, every time we got in the finals, he would win by a point, you know, or I mean, so many close matches. But we're probably even historically, you know, he's probably, I don't know, eight and eight. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. That'd be something to count. But he he was a big rivalry. And, of course, coming through, uh, uh, Paul Wiederman was in that group because he won the trials in 84 uh, before Bobby came back and beat him. Um, so, and Weaver, and I beat Bill Rosado, who beat me 21-3 to in 1980. I beat him in 84 trials. And so that it, it was interesting. Then, of course, Larry Nicholson, who uh, in the end, and, and uh, Rob Eider, who beat me in '93 because I didn't really care at that point. You know, it's like I, I really want to go to the world, and then they end up winning the world championship. <laughs> you know, the whole team championship. And I was kind of retiring, and and I was still teaching at that time, so I'm trying to train and teach. In the early 90s and i had worked out with rob for probably five years at asu and and uh he got better he was my mirror image he was one of the hardest guys for me to wrestle because he was left-handed i'm left-handed i taught him everything i know so it was almost like wrestling myself so i was kind of a mirror image and it made it very tough and when he beat me in 93 or actually he beat me in 92 was the first time First match of the Olympic trials, he beat me. And I was like, shit. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I look back mentally to two things that happened. And one of the things that I learned from was in 88, when Kenny Choto beat Joe Gonzalez in the trials. Everybody thought, well, that's an impossibility. It's not gonna happen. Well, he did. And I remember after the first match, you know, we go down and, and, and room and take a little nap between sessions before the next round. And I mean, there was 20 coaches came in there saying, hey, Joe, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do that. And Joe's just, you know, he's just a wreck, right? And in 92, I remember I, I reflect back to that experience and, 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 they were coming up to me and trying to do the same thing. And I said, I got it. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Because I already knew, you know, what Joe had went through and had some kind of experience with that. And and, and I think the, the biggest thing for me was um, at that point, you knew what the Olympics meant. So, you know, the first time going through and, you know, going in and out of the village with John Smith or, or Bruce or these guys that it was new. 
it was a phenomenal experience. I mean, just a, a great time. You're meeting a lot of people, you're doing a lot of things, and, and you're trying to stay focused. And at that time in 92, in the trials, when Rob beat me the first match, I was just reflecting back. I, people don't understand what this means because you only get one shot every four years. And so, you know, obviously I came back and won the next two matches, but, uh, you know, I just kind of kept people out away from me and said, let me do my thing because I, I got this. But it was nerve wracking so much that I don't know, froze, I think, the first match. So not taking anything away from Bob because that was the reason I came back and did my comeback trying out for 96 because I wanted to either Rob was going to make it or I was going to make it. 96 year anniversary, you know, Olympics on home turf, got to do that. So, and I didn't want to look back. I didn't want to be one of those guys that looks over my shoulder and says, you know, what if, what if, what if I had come back? What if I had wrestled? Because I remember, you know, growing up, in the 80s before they got all these stipends and people got involved and at the high level it is now uh financially uh, there were people that you would see at the trials in 1980 84 88 that would come back that you wouldn't see them for four years and they're still got their olympic dream alive because they didn't get there in the 70s you know and i look back to that and it, it just kind of makes me chuckle you know that was the whole reason i went to 96 it was either i was going to make the team or rob was going to make the team so did he make it in 96 he made it in 96 i think he ended okay. up sixth or seventh uh, i got to coach him in atlanta uh but that was the whole reason i did that because i don't want to be looking over my shoulder and you know going back and you know living through other athletes i just want that experience saying i'm done yeah. And the funny thing is veterans started, veterans wrestling started like after 96, 97, 98. And people were saying, hey, you're going to wrestle veterans? And I'm like, I'm done. No, I'm not. I'll be happy to coach you, though. <laughs> so I'll coach you. I'll be in your corner. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me about your Olympic experiences. I mean, uh, was there was there one better than the other as far as just everything or? Atlanta was great because I was coaching. <laughs> I got to coach Roselli, Lou Roselli, and, and Rob, and and that was you know there was no pressure on me other than to be you know help these guys and be responsible and, and help them make the be the best they they could do and hopefully bring out uh, achievement. But that was the probably the most fun because I didn't have. Uh, ambition, you know, I didn't have the pressure or little things like that. So I got to really enjoy the sport, all the sports, because, you know, I went to gymnastics and team handball, we went to boxing, and you got to go around and, and see the Olympic Village and interact with people. And it was different. So uh, versus 92, when we were cooped up in the, in the, uh, village you know i mean the village was you know it was nice i think probably 92 was more enjoyable because you you were uh, 
the dream team obviously was there. Uh, you know, we roomed above, you know, Tim Courier and Pete Sampras and all these tennis people that were in the village. They were below us in the village, but they moved out like after opening ceremonies. You know, they moved to the Hilton with all the dream team guys. But you got to interact with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, the dream team came by. I was in the training room, ice and this and ice and that. And, you know, Clyde the Glide and uh, the Admiral David, what's his name? David Robinson. David Robinson and then uh, Courier. And, and I mean, there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of people that there. Uh, you know, I talked to John Stockton and uh, what's his counterpart? Carl Malone. Carl Malone. My neck was sore. <laughs> I mean, everybody gravitated towards Magic Johnson at opening ceremonies. Uh, Bird and Jordan weren't there, but they all kind of gravitated towards Magic because it was like every country in the world all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> and Carl Malone and I have a mutual friend in Idaho who has since passed away. But, you know, I, I stood there for 45 minutes talking with Carl Malone, John Stockton. And, Next day, I was like, oh, why is my neck so <laughs> I'm already icing my knee and my shoulders and, you know, my ankle. And, yeah, so, uh, but those those kind of memories are, are enjoyable. Yeah. To look back on and, you know, some things. But probably the, the better one is, you know, we were cooped up in that village for so long. And, and I was room with Bruce Bumgarner and, and we're like, God, we got to get out of here. You know, Kendall Cross at the time was, you know, he was doing the blender thing. So his diet didn't go very well, but he, he would, he would uh, go out and run every night, like at 11, 12 o'clock at night. And he'd come back and fire up his blender. It's like, gee, Kendall, go to, you know, do it a decent time. We're trying to rest. But we got so cooped up in there that, that Bruce and I went to a, a we got tickets for a dream team game and we just, just to get out, you know, and do something. So I mean, anxiety and anticipation of just getting ready. And so, uh, I think it was the dream team played Brazil. And of course they throttled them, but, uh, you know, it was a great experience. We got off the subway and, and somebody offered us $200 for our tickets. And we, we look at each other and we're going, wow. We only paid $50 for these tickets, so we can make some money. But I think the experience is probably more important because we said, you know, the whole reason we got out of the village is to go see a dream team game and do something, take our mind off of, you know, all all that anxiety and anticipation of competing because I think we were competing like two, two days later. And so we went to a dream team game. It was extremely enjoyable and, you know, we got to witness the usher down the front row turn Evander Holyfield away. You know, wow. and they sent him back up the stairs. He came right by us. And then the, I guess the supervisor guy came running after him, Evander, 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 and brought him back down to the front row, you know. But I mean, just little things like that that you got to interact with people. And um, yeah, it was. It was more fun, and, you know. In '88, it was new. Uh, 
you know, Chris Everett Lloyd was there at opening ceremonies. Uh, Barry Davis got pooped on by a pigeon while we were outside. We didn't get to see the opening ceremonies because we're all waiting outside. And uh, so we didn't actually get to see the opening ceremonies, which is a little bit different. But, yeah. Uh, uh, so, of course, we didn't go to the closing ceremonies either because we left. But uh, that part was fun afterwards. The after 88 was funner than probably the whole anxiety and the newness of, of the Olympics. So we were talking a little bit earlier about John Smith. Um, you were on two Olympic teams with him. What what kind of competitor was he? What was it like to be around him? John John is uh, very focused, and he, he's he's got his goals, and he's not going to let you or me or anybody around him uh, distract him from that because. You know, we used to do this uh, Josie's camp up in Idaho with the Oklahoma State team a number of years, and John used to come up there, and Cliff Laughlin and I, and John would go out fishing, and we'd do some, we did quite a few things together. And John wrecked his ATV out in the dunes and got scarred his, you know, hit the handlebars and we just about cut him open, you know. So I think maybe after that he said, well, you know, I'm just going to stay and train in Oklahoma, so. So the next few years, we didn't have that much association, but we had a lot of good times back then. And, uh, but John is, is extremely focused. He had the goal in mind. And I think Kenny did the same thing when, when he went up against uh, uh, Dave Schultz. It was, it was you know, not going to be denied. And, and, uh, but he was a lot of fun, you know? I mean, other than back in the day, him eating all your Copenhagen, <laughs> he was a chew bum, you know. But hey, you gotta chew. John, are you gonna buy a candy soon? <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of a way of passing time because, you know, you're playing golf and you're fishing and you just relax. Yeah. What was Bruce Baumgartner like? What is he like? Bruce is a, a reader, uh, he's, he's a learner. Always read these biographies about uh, Sam Walton, and, you know, successful people, uh, and he, he's he's a carpenter by trade. You know, I mean, builds his own stuff and it's pretty good. But uh, I mean, we're on the more mellow, quieter side, you know. And I think that's probably why we were good roommates. You know, we just kind of you know, try to stay focused in our in our own mental state where we didn't have too many distractions but yeah bruce is is a good guy yeah did you uh have much relationship with the schultz brothers yeah um a little bit with mark i think in 85 i can't remember if we roomed together in 85 world championships i know we roomed together in 88 at the olympic training center me him and kenny Cherto which was probably not a good pairing. You know, I don't know why they don't make adjustments, you know, but they didn't do that back in those days. You know, here's, here's who you room with. You don't really you know, have much of a choice or say in it. I mean, I guess you could, but uh, uh, Mark, you know, he's just a beast. I mean, 
he's he's a beast physically. Yeah. And Dave, you know, Dave was always uh, uh, thinking. I hate to say, I think Kenny Mundy out, out fought him because, I mean, Dave was a, a technician and, and strategy. You know, you would read the rule books and, and you'd look at a rule and, and you know, can't lock your hands around a, a headlock. Well, you can, you can cross your arms, you can do different things, you know, and, and kind of innovator and uh, super kind, I mean. He would just do anything for them. Yeah, I, I remember reading somewhere that he made everybody feel like he was their best friend. He was their best friend. He did, you know. I mean, we were, you know, you go, I was on the farm a few years, and, and uh, I mean, one time just out of the village, hey, you want to go shoot some pigeons, you know? So we went out over to his house and got a shotgun, and he's like, oh, no, here, you you shoot it. We go to this old barn, and, you know, I'm just blasting up. There. I can't hit a pigeon, you know. They're they're tough to hit, but I blew a lot of holes in the barn. <laughs> <laughs> this old barn that was all collapsing, but and, and it was all about you, you know. So when you're around Dave, it, it's like uh, uh, he wants to make sure you're taken care of. Yeah. Um, does it bother you that they? have taken the sport away from the smallest guys and the biggest guys for that matter. I mean, you can't be a behemoth these days and wrestle and guys like yourself, um, you know, that 125 is the smallest there is now. So it, it, it bothered me um, because I know how many people are out there, you know, Jimmy Jackson, Gary Albright, those guys. Uh, and on the lighter side, um, when, when I actually heard that Dave was killed, I was with Sammy Henson, we were in Krasny Arts, Russia, and they came and told us, uh, I didn't know at that time they were gonna eliminate the lower weight classes, but at that tournament, I never seen so many lightweight guys. I mean, you got all the Mongolians, and you got the Siberians, and you got all the Asian countries, and they were just, there was a, a lot. I don't know if there was, you know, 50 to 100 guys in my weight class, but it looked like it, you know, there was a lot. And just to come back a year or two later to uh, eliminate the lower weights, you know, it's a travesty because there's a lot of guys that kind of fun to watch, you know, there's, they don't stop. I mean, it was, it's like two cats. Yeah, I loved watching uh, the smaller guys, you know, 105 and 114. It was really fun to watch and so fast. And I think I told you when I met you briefly in Vegas at the U.S. Open that my wife and I went to the World Championships and I was pointing out these guys that were like, you know, five feet two and they had these mangled ears. And I'm like, that guy right there. Yeah, yeah. The old <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that guy right there would, would rip your arms off, you know, just little dudes. And I'm like, that was a 105 pounder. And yeah. um, so and that bothers me. It bothers me that there's only six weight classes. I mean, even in the upper weights, a lot of guys don't have a, a weight class. Next yeah. year, next year, Chance Marsteller is going to have to move up to uh, Dave Taylor's weight class, which is almost 190 pounds. And I don't know how mm -hmm. that's going to be for him. Um, but there's a there's a 
there's a dozen stories, 20 stories of guys like that that don't have a weight class anymore. John Reeder never had a weight class. Yeah, um, yeah in between, you know, you, you look at how how Dake, Dake kind of went through four national titles in college and, and succeeded, and then he finally beat Burroughs, and then Burroughs moves up, and, and I mean, Magic Man, Taylor, you know, he was, they were all three at the same weight and they kind of spread themselves out. And now you had Jaden Cox going up to, you know, Russell Snyder and uh, trying to find a place. And, and that, I think that's, does a disservice to the sport that you can't find a place to put them. So eliminating it down to six weight classes certainly takes a lot of that fire out. You see a little bit more of it in the girls because they do have lighter weights. So you see those cat fights still, you know, they're just, I mean, they're just nonstop in motion. Uh, but, you know, even in those middle weights and, and the upper weights, they're putting a limit on it. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a travesty that we've kind of almost stepped back in the sport, you know, a little bit. We're not expanding. Like wrestling in itself is inclusive to everybody, you know, supposedly. You know, back when Bruce and I made the poster, anybody could wrestle. Anybody could wrestle. You know, there wasn't a limit on it. Then they started limiting the heavyweights, and and, and now uh, they're eliminating a couple of the weight classes. And uh, you don't see the growth within that. Only what they have available. And you know, IOC, and, and I, I kind of understand it a little bit. Um, I understand bringing women's into the Olympics. Like uh, I understand that. Uh, I understand the IOC too because they, you know they don't want to build a small city every time they come, so they're eliminating, and that's why we got to this whole process of of having to qualify for the Olympics. And uh, yeah, you know, so it's it's a little bit different. So you can only bring so many competitors. I just kind of wish it was like track and field, you know where you get your top three guys in there that'd be that'd be awesome yeah yeah that would be really cool um where what do you what's your opinion on you know i I see a lot of people saying get rid of folk style and just just have us be freestyle i'm of the opinion that i love the three styles and i love the different seasons personally um i like having folk style season and watching the college and then them transition into the international styles. Um, do you like folk style? Do you want to, do you think we should, you know, and I, I also know that there's more to wrestling than just worlds and Olympics. So I like the college aspect of it. I like, yeah. I like the self-defense aspect of it. You know, I mean, as far as folk style goes and everything. So I was just curious what your opinion is on it. Well, I, I think, you know, just talking about the way the weight classes are, I think you've got to expand everything, you know, uh, Folk style and collegiate is native to our country. And every country around the world has some form of, you know, jujitsu or sumo or, you know, dirt wrestling, some kind of martial arts that's particularly self-defense or used for military purposes to train people in hand-to-hand combat. And I like to see it expand more. I like to keep our, our collegiate folk style because like you say, I enjoy the seasons too. It's a different kind of training. So 
when I first started, I started in freestyle in seventh grade. So I didn't know anything uh, about collegiate at that time until I got to high school. We didn't really have a collegiate season like they do now. And now everything's kind of overlapped and it's whatever style you want and freestyle and then jujitsu and you got martial arts and you got a lot of different things. And I think they all need to be kind of inclusive to um, be able to train the entire body. You know, you're, you're training for human combat. I mean, you're a gladiator. You know, it's, it's a warrior kind of mentality. And I don't think you can get there uh, limiting things, number one. Number two is you've got to diet a little bit. So everybody's always, hey, we're going to get rid of cutting weight. And we're going to have these weight. You're always going to need to diet a little bit to be your ultimate best. You know? uh, I mean, almost everybody can stand to lose five pounds. You know, it's not going to kill you. Right, but it's going to trim you down to a point where you're faster and you're stronger and you're lean, uh, a better warrior. You know, it's a hand to hand combat, and I would like to see it expand. And, and I like I like what we have collegiate. I like the seasons like you do. Um, you know, in fact, there's there's almost uh, there's a lot of opportunity. Around. I mean, you can find a tournament anywhere in the world on a given Sunday, you know, being Saturday or Sunday or weekend, or, uh, whether it's freestyle or deco or you want to go in the room and do jiu-jitsu, um, collegiate, they're, they're there. And the opportunities are there, a lot more than we used to have in our little, little bitty high school schedule back in the day where you got a couple of tournaments and then wait for postseason. Yeah, the sport's come a long way. I remember having uh, Chris Campbell on here, and he was telling me about the 82 world. They literally slept in a barn in Switzerland, you know, and now if you're one of the top wrestlers, you can make a pretty good living. Um, yeah. So a lot of things have changed, and America seems to be really deep these days, as evidenced by this year's world championships. Uh, I think we've got six new guys going to the championships, and that's pretty sweet. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's come a long way because I remember uh, – you know, of course, Art Matori was sun-kissed and, and who's always supported wrestling and, and uh, Sonny Greenhall at New York AC and all those guys back there that had the big rivalry. And, and you know, those are the, the main supporters in, in some of the collegiate programs you know, with Iowa Wrestling Club, Hawkeye Club, and, and different things. That was what was supporting wrestling in the 70s and 80s, you know, that kind of built the clubs. And, you know, you had four or five guys and, and – um, nationally, it wasn't that deep. Um, I mean, we probably had five or six guys that were, well, we had, you know, a dozen guys, let's say a dozen guys weight class, you know, that are uh, uh, capable of being the number one guy. Yeah. Maybe a dozen, you know, depending on injuries and what people do. Um, but after, you know, had, the stipend system not come into play. Uh, I think most people on the 88 team would have retired. But because John DuPont came in and USA Wrestling started becoming a business and 
starting to get these donations and, and uh, uh, corporate sponsors that kind of help pump up the sport. Uh, we stayed in another four years. You know? Yeah. And then we started building that more depth where, you know, we not only have, you know, three or four guys that are quality that are capable of wrestling the Pan American Games, the World Cup, or the World Championships, or being Olympians. Now, now we have, you know, 10 or 12. And, and now at this point in the stage, since it's been developed for so long, you know, there, there might be two dozen guys that could step in there at any given moment. And building that depth, and you see it, you see it really coming into play a lot on the women's side because they're starting to build that depth as well. Yeah. Which is really cool that, that, you know, America has become so strong internationally, you know, versus Russia and Iran, which, you know, the main competitors and uh, Japan. Do you, do you think, do you think that's a big reason why Russia is and historically has been, um, you know, the best is their depth or is it tradition or what do you think makes the Russians? So well, great? I, th I think when they were uh, the Soviet Union, USSR back in the day, you know, they had uh, a huge part of the world because you, you're talking about all the Baltic states and, and politically, I mean, they could choose from a lot of people. They had the depth. They had the financial support to have the depth because they were supporting these, these clubs in Russia and Uzbekistan and uh, Belarus, and, which are all independent now, you know. Uh, when they broke up, I think that kind of took a little bit out of them as far as being able to find that number one guy because it's so competitive. But they always had the support. And, uh, you know, I, I think Dave Schultz used to say that all the time, you know, if we had what they had, we'd be light years ahead of them. Well, now we're getting that. We're getting to that point. Uh, or we have been at that point since, you know, we, we won in the 90s, with, you know, World championships and, and now with Bill Zaddy coaching as well, winning another world championship, a uh, couple more actually. So we're, we're at that point now. And, and Iran, you know, seems to be Iran and USA now uh, going head to head a little bit more because Russia's kind of falling back because the political atmosphere, uh, obviously, not the best. So uh, and the drugs and all those kinds of things that, that happen in, in sport. But uh, the U.S. has kind of taken, taken its place. And, and we're any given year, and we're there. Yeah, I've asked a few guys, um, Jim Shear and uh, Barry Davis especially, I asked him if he thought that the Russians were on steroids and they were wrestling. And... Uh, I think they both said, well, I can't say for sure, but I know that they were stronger than anyone I've ever wrestled. <laughs> well, um, you, know, I, you know, I wouldn't really accuse, you know, especially some of the lightweights and, and maybe in some of the other sports, maybe more so, but not so much in wrestling because it's so hard to, to diet and make that kind of weight if you're on uh, growth hormones, you know, that, that's going to be, be tough. It, yeah, you, you are stronger. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think they resort to what has developed over the last 20 years, 25 years in the fact that, that it, ha it has become a science. We have 
different kind of psychological and mindset training. We have different kinds of uh, fine line uh, dietary things that we kind of identify in the glucose and the enzymes and, and the proteins and things that will really fine tuning that body down to, to its lean, lean mass so you can be a warrior. So um, it, it's interesting just to see that that it has come so far. Uh, but I think a lot of it's the, you know, the political atmosphere. And, and we've done such a great job. Rich Bender at USA Wrestling has done such a great job with, uh, uh, and, and there's others. Jim Shear obviously was former executive director as well. And, and you know, I think everybody in the United States and in, in wrestling world, it's kind of a common goal to, to make wrestling better. And I think through everybody's action, even your actions on podcast and, you know, interviewing these people and uh, it makes wrestling better. And uh, we've done that not only uh, uh, with different support and coaching, but financially and corporate sponsors and different th- things that, that have happened to you. Know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's phenomenal. And the people that are involved in it, you know, just the <clears throat> everyday people. You know, moms and dads too. Yeah, you know, that's something I love about wrestling is, you know, I, I would say 90% of the people that I've reached out to and at the, you know, guys that wrestle at the highest level have been very gracious with their time. Um, and I say this all the time too, like some of the best wrestlers our country has ever had, like yourself, never get to tell their story a lot of times, you know, like a lot of people, like you can be a world champion and, and most people walking down the street don't know who you are. Um so it's it's been cool to be able to talk to people. Yeah, I, I think in the wrestling world, people know who they are. Sure. And it, it hasn't been probably until recently when when you start having more publicity with you know uh, Helen Rulis and I believe and and different things that, that people you know you look at uh, um, uh, Anthony Robles and and people that have stories. Uh, Chris Pratt, you know, obviously a wrestler and these guys, but uh, they bring more notoriety to the sport and people start looking at it. So, you know, I'm famous in the wrestling world, even though Jordan, Jordan Burroughs didn't know who I was when we first met, but hey, that's okay. He, he went home and did his research, he said, the next time we ran into each other. But I mean, it, it's it's an amazing world. So you, you are famous in the wrestling world, but now... We have such great athletes and uh, uh, ambassadors of the sport that are transcending the wrestling world, and they're out there in the communities and, and with Beat the Streets and all the things that, that are going on with Beat the Streets. Um, it's becoming a mainstream sport, a little bit more than it used to be. Yeah. Well, I've got two more questions for you. First of all, what is the um, best victory of your wrestling career and what was the worst? If you can point to one. Well, hmm, best victory. I, I got a lot of good ones. I mean, was, you know, uh, yeah, he made nine world teams. So that's a lot of, that's yeah, a lot of victories. I mean, I, I think one of, one of mine is is an '85 uh, national open. I beat Richie Salamone. Uh, yeah, 
that's when the tech rule came out and I teched him uh, and I didn't get OW. But no, that, that was because that was my first national title outright. I mean, other than, you know, AAU juniors and that whole transition, but um, that was probably one of the most gratifying, satisfying victories. And then uh, beating him again in 80, 88 Olympic trials, uh, making the team and, and feeling that sense of I, I, I've arrived, you know, uh, accomplished part of my goal. And now I just got to carry it forward. And, and uh, uh, so that was the other part of it. So I just, you know, they, the trials in 88 were a different kind of thing because they had uh, nationals and then all of a sudden they threw in this preliminary nationals in Topeka, Kansas for I don't know why before the main trials, before the wrestle-offs. Um, and I beat Richie 13 to 11. And uh, I was too close. So in, in Pensacola in the final trials, I, I think I uh, was beaten in like 11 zero and pinned him in a 9-0, whatever. And then the second match, I beat him 11-0. And nice. Uh, just totally took control. I was I was razor sharp. I was ready. Had I wrestled the Olympics at that time, right then, then I'd be Olympic champion. But uh, in this sport, timing is everything. You know, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of your body. You got to do your training. You got to do your things. And timing is everything. You know, it's like um, when I, you know, uh, Sergey Camp Chalkoff who beat me for the bronze medal in '88. Uh, three to one. Uh, we used to have the same kind of rivalry internationally that Rich and I had nationally uh, at that time. And five months later, I beat him at World Cup. You know, and, you know timing's everything. So yeah. You, you just got to have all these kinds of things come together cosmically. That, and, 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 and USA Wrestling and you know, NC2A Sport and all that everything that we have involved in wrestling has kind of been going in that direction for the last 25 years that it is making it so much better. Yeah. Uh, my worst loss was, you know, uh, probably uh, Cuba. Uh, Who did I wrestle? Uh, Vila. We ended up bronze and 96. Um, I got hosed on a match down there with him, and, and and it was such a good match. I won, but I raised his hand. We're in Cuba, <laughs> mm. and uh, but I still got a trophy though. They gave oh, me yeah. a trophy for that for losing. <laughs> uh, how did that work? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, when when you're in some of these countries. Um, if you're beating their guy, there's more time on the clock, right? So, a you know, six-minute match, it, it could be eight and a half. You don't know because they're keeping the time. Yeah. You know? But if you're losing, it might only be four minutes. You don't know. So, they're gonna they're gonna you know cheat you on some time somewhere. And if it works like that, I don't know, but. Uh, that or different kind of politics and 
how the draw goes and because back in the day it was only the luck of the draw you know and uh so I, yeah i i have some bigger losses high school state which kind of drove me you know my high school coach used to always say uh it's ironic how failure leads to success and that loss in high school probably propelled me for the rest of my wrestling career because i wasn't a state champion yeah and uh and and that was a, a good point uh, that really helped me persevere through a lot of adversity because you know i had a history of being second a lot you know through uh, high school and obviously my early 80s in national competition i was second a lot but uh you know once you get on top it's you, you kind of learn how to stay on top I, I yeah, did a lot of things I did. Yeah. You know, you you've seen most people, not just the United States guys, but like Russians and everything else. Can you point to one guy who's like that's the best wrestler I've ever seen? Um, I, I don't know that I can point to one guy. I I can tell you, um, uh, two guys that that kind of come up in my memory right now. And, and one was Takata, who was, uh, uh, I think he ended up second to Yugoslavia in the 84 Olympics because you know, he had also since 76. And uh, he was 76 Olympic champion at 114. Uh, well, Joe Gonzalez used to go train with him in Japan. And he, he, he revered Takata. He was always talking about Takata. Well, I wrestled him at Big Bear as an exhibition match uh, right before 84 Olympics. And, and I can tell you, I was like, there was nothing I could do. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing how he just kind of moved me and pressured me and this and that. And it was like, it felt like a throwing dummy. Um, that that was one and, and the other one was in 96 to tia uh you know watched him beat kenny you know kenny was you know third olympics you know actually he's a little older then and uh, uh i don't know how well his training went but satia was you know kind of took kenny apart and i was like that kind of amazed me you know because kenny is you know he's not easy to beat and, mm -hmm. and it kind of made me feel like when when, when I saw him doing that to Kenny, it, it reminded me of Takata, how, how easily he just schooled me, you know. And I saw that in 96 with Satya beating Kenny, and I was like, that shouldn't happen. But, yeah, it, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, I've heard how freaking great he was. And that's who, that's who Slay beat, right, in the 2000 Olympics? I think he, he's one of the guys... Uh, Yeah, I think he was, yeah. Was it him? I think it was Satiev, yeah, because it was a big deal, and then he ended up losing in the in the finals, but then he ended up getting the gold because that guy was on steroids or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, man, I could talk to you all day if I didn't have to go pick up my son from uh, from his mom right now. She, not We're not divorced, but she, he, he goes to work with her sometimes, and I got to go pick him up so she can get some stuff done. But, um 
I could talk to you all day. There's a lot of stuff I didn't get yeah. to ask you about Bobby Douglas and, and all kinds yeah, of Bobby stuff. D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I, I can ask you that real quick. She, she can wait a minute. What was, what was Bobby Douglas like? I feel like he's a guy that gets overlooked sometimes too. He does. He does. Um, you know, him and Josie were, were really good friends and, and uh, colleagues many times and, and kind of rivals in, in college, uh, not in college, but uh, coaching against each other. And, and Bobby is, he's another guy that's kind of like, like Dave Schultz, you know, that he, he's there for you and is, he's always thinking. And, and uh, I think he, he's, he's, he's a good motivator uh, just because he kind of knows the sport inside and out. He's got the history of the sport. And I mean, you go back into the early days when he was putting his sun kiss books together and the takedown wrestling books together. Um, phenomenal. And uh, uh, he, he not only coaches you, he kind of schools you a little bit in that, okay, write down your goal. What are you doing? And, and trying to get into some of that and, you know, put it on a letter and, and I'll save it for you, this and that. And, um, and he was a hell of a competitor. I mean, I, I look back to Unknown some, some, some of his things that, that uh, he accomplished in his career. Uh, you know, I'd like, I'd like, love to see that old footage. And nowadays, you got all of it. I mean, you got a lot of that stuff. So when he, he was back in, you know, 64, 68. Yeah. Has he kind of stepped away from the sport? I don't see him around much. Well, he's older, you know, he's at home in Iowa and, and uh, uh, yeah, just trying to stay healthy and take care of himself. I don't know that he goes out to a lot of things anymore, um, travel wise, um, but yeah, you can still call on once in a while, you know, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I think it's been a, a year or two since I've talked to him, but, uh, you know, I've talked to Tadaki Hada uh, last year or maybe the year before, before they went to yeah man well i gotta tell you it's it's uh it's very cool for me to be able to talk to people like yourselves you know like i uh you know like you touched on we don't we don't get to watch or we didn't get to watch back in the day um people compete we just had those usa wrestlers that came out once a month or once every two months maybe and for the longest time you were the guy at 105 and a half. So I knew who you were. I've known who you were forever. Um, and I asked God to put the right people in my path all the time. And, and you came out at the U S open. I was getting ready to leave and that's just how it worked out. And I'm like, Holy crap. I know who you are. That's <laughs> amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really a true blessing, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I went out there because I didn't, I don't get out that much since I retired because I was always coaching high school. So I never got away a lot. And uh, so it, it's kind of nice that they brought the open back to Vegas like it used to be. And, and uh, you kind of see all the old home week again and reminisce with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. And uh, I would love to talk to There's so many people I want to talk to. I want to talk to Kendall Cross and uh, um, try to get a hold of him and, and just tons of people. But it was a true honor to talk to you. And is there anything you would like to say before I let you go? Well, no, I reach out to those people all the time. You know, uh, I was going to try to go to Final X, and I called Kendall, and, you know, 
we have already experienced that smoke out here and whatnot. And I, I was like, how bad is it? Well, it's bad, but it's supposed to clear up. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Flights are getting canceled all over the place and delayed. And I was like, uh, I should have went, though. Yeah. So I'm yeah. trying to do some genealogy now with my father and, and uh, found out my grandfather's buried in the Bronx. So I'm, uh, that's my, my new quest is getting into genealogy on my father's side. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be cool. Um, well, if they don't have anything else you would like to say, it, it's again, just been a true honor to talk to you and I really enjoyed it and maybe we'll have you back sometime and we'll talk about some other stuff. Well, it's been an honor and I think it's, it's a great, uh, pleasure for me and a blessing to talk about wrestling because it's given me so much in my life. And, and I mean, most people I talk to on a daily basis are involved in wrestling in one way or another. Um, you know, when you're traveling or you just run into people, even people like yourself, like I didn't know you before Vegas and uh, I never met. And, you know, it's, it's very nice to, to be able to uh, expand your, your, your world through wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why'd you shave off that sweet mustache? <laughs> uh, I think after 1990, um, when I was going into the 2000 year, uh, just needed something new, you know, Okay. Got, had to get healthy and, and, uh, yeah, I had that mustache for 10 years. Yeah. It was a long time. Yeah. Iconic. All right, man. Well, uh, I'll let you go and I'll let you know when this is out and you can share it if you don't mind. And uh, God bless you and thanks for doing it. Hey, God bless you. Appreciate you. You bet, buddy. Thanks. Take care. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. Now you got technical problems on how to turn this off. Though. It's okay. <laughs> I think there's an X you just click on. Yeah, I found it. There you go. It's my wife's job. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Tim Vaney, nine-time world team member. That is, a, that is a very big accomplishment and a super nice guy. I knew he would be. I met him briefly in Vegas, and uh, I can just tell right away that he was a super nice guy and that I had to talk to him. He's been around everyone. And, and uh, so good luck to Porterville this year and uh, all the years that he'll be coaching and, and everything else. It was, it was cool to talk to him. Like I said, those guys were big deal to me growing up and uh so being able to talk to him now is is uh just one of the highlights of my life so god bless all of you as, as always go to making it happen m-a-c-a-n it happen.com help out little bo making and his family and support usa wrestling and i've also got another podcast called the truth account on here i do with mike baldwin i forgot to mention that in the beginning but uh if you guys are still watching make sure you check that out and uh that's it god bless all of you thanks so much for tuning in and take care goodbye